Amen. Text this morning is from John chapter 17, from verse 20 to the end of the chapter. These are the words of God. Jesus speaking, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you, that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and you will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let us pray. Father, what a wonder it is that Jesus prays for us, and that you hear his prayers. In Jesus' name, hear our prayer, and grant that we would receive from this text all that you have for us to believe and do. Send your Holy Spirit to do just that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. The prayer that Jesus prays that is recorded for us in John 17 is, of course, the longest recorded prayer that we have um, of Jesus. We do know several times that, uh, I know at least in the Gospel of Luke, there's more than once it says that Jesus spent the night in prayer. Jesus knew how to pray, and we are, we are learning from him what to pray as well. One of the things we see is that Jesus prays for us. In this section particularly, we see Jesus praying for this generation, not just the generation that he was in. Although it's clear that that's, that's what he had in mind, even as he was praying for the disciples. But he had specific prayers for those disciples in that generation. That was carried on in verses 6 and following. And now he turns and begins to pray for all those that will still come to believe in him in the future. And, and so what, when, one of the first things you should see is Jesus is ending his prayer with great confidence. With great confidence. This is not a man who is uh, expecting to, to suffer a great defeat and an end of a three-year um, the three-year greatest, greatest attempt that he could make at trying to build a kingdom. This is a man who is, as he's praying, he's praying with great confidence, looking beyond this small band of disciples. If he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, they've fallen asleep. Maybe John heard it and later on was able to record it, or, or, or maybe later Jesus told them what he prayed. But we know in the other Gospels that in, in, in Gethsemane, Jesus goes off and prays, and the disciples keep falling asleep. These are the loyal ones, and that's all there is. Beyond that small band of disciples and then beyond the crowds that will call for his crucifixion, Jesus prays with great confidence beyond the cross and the grave to those who will be blessed by all that will occur before the watching world and then declared to the world to come. And here we sit today, here we sit today like an infant just home from the hospital, a wobbling but growing answer to that prayer. I, I would argue that we are only the beginning of the answer to that prayer. We are the early church. We are the beginning of what God has promised to do in answer to that prayer that Jesus has given. There is both a promised oneness or unity that we already have, we'll see in this text, and a mature unity that we are still growing into. 
And so Jesus is praying with regard to the uniting of that church and the united strengthening work of that church over all of the world in this prayer. And so, uh, hear this gospel confidence in verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Not for those who might believe in me, but they probably won't. Not, not those who um, might hear, but probably won't believe in me. But I know that I know the ones that you have given me. Jesus had declared that there were other sheep still to come in chapter 10, verse 15. And here he prays for them, which means he prays for us. When he says, uh, also in verse 20, he says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. You notice that? Through their word. Remember, he had been praying for the disciples in, in the previous, the, the apostles. And he says, I, I, I'm praying for the, those who will believe through their word. Well, then we're not, we're not part of that. We have not heard their word. We have not heard the apostles' word. That would, only, that would mean it's only for one generation. But as we see in the prayers of Christ, when he was praying that, that God would, through those apostles, preach to all of the world, he was referring that the whole, to, the, to the fact that the Holy Spirit would, would fall upon them and that they, through their inspired writings, would create their word, which is what we have here, the canon of Scripture, and especially all of the New Testament. Their word refers to the, refer, the, the word of God that the apostles would produce over the next decades that then would be the foundation for preaching and teaching for generations this good news. All preaching is to come forth from this word. It's not supposed to be uh, man's opinions, but all, it's all supposed to be built on the foundation of the teachings of the apostles and prophets. That's the foundation from which all the teachings of the gospel, all the teachings of preachers, of Bible teachers, is to come from. From. It's to come from their word. Jesus prays that this would be given, and, uh, and, and so that is, that's the foundation then for all preaching ever since. Now, if you think about as Jesus prays this prayer, one day later, you would have thought that this was the end of the ministry of Jesus. That's it. It's over. He dies. And today, today I believe many are tempted to think that we are at the end of the ministry of Jesus upon this earth. So in the day that Jesus was there and then crucified, he had a small band, um, they all scatter, and Jesus dies on the cross, and it might be reasonable to think it's over. Today, we have hundreds of millions of professing believers all over the world in every continent, and we're in the midst of a variety of different kinds of temptations and trials, a variety of different compromises, a variety of different attacks upon the church. But I would say we have far more evidence than they had uh, that, that the ministry of Jesus Christ is far from over. He, there's a vibrant work of the gospel ministry going on in every continent of this world, practically in every country of this world. And, and so we, we should hear from this, um, we should learn from this confidence that Jesus has that there's far more work to do because Jesus knew what had been promised to Abraham. Genesis 12, 3, Abraham is promised in you, in you and through you, um, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Could be translated all the nations or all the peoples of the earth shall be blessed. And the apostles would declare the same. In Acts chapter 3, preaching really to the Jews, um, it, it, they say, You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. They know that preaching this gospel is now the beginning of the fulfillment of what Abraham had promised. But then Paul, when he's preaching, when he writes to the Galatians, a bunch of Gentiles, 
a bunch of not, not related by blood to Abraham at all, says this, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. It's as though Paul was saying, and so that promise that was made to Abraham is for you, Galatians, for you Gentiles, and as Jesus would say, and for generations to come. John would be given a vision of what the fulfillment of that prayer would look like in Revelation chapter 7. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So, we would do well to grow in his confidence in the midst um, of the trials and persecutions that may very well be right around the corner in our generation and in this, in, in this nation. We need to stand with the confidence that Jesus had. Listen, if you want to turn to, to John 12 and, and be reminded of what we saw before, John 12 verse 27 this is, uh, this is really the beginning of what becomes this discourse. It was right before he washes the disciples' feet. And we, hear, we see Jesus troubled because of what is before him. And he says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it and, sa and said that it had thundered, others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself, fulfilling the promise that was given to Abraham. Jesus prays with that kind of confidence on the night of his betrayal on the night before his crucifixion. <clears throat> and he, what does he say now for, for the, these that will still to come? Verse 21, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. It's a strange verse, and it's the kind of verse of, it is the verse of many cults, actually taken out of context in the sense of the rest of Scripture. Um, you might recall in, in the garden, um, the, the way that cults use this is the, is the way that the serpent used it in the garden. You will be like God. So there are many cults that believe that in following Jesus or going through certain rituals, um, we're, we're living our lives and that one day we become God also. Where do you get this idea that we are going to become God also? And they'll say, well, John 17, 21 says that they may all be one as you, Father, in many, and I in you, that they also may be one in us. They're going to be just like us. You will become like God. But this is not a metaphysical oneness that he's talking about. It's a covenantal oneness. Remember, this is based on this covenantal union that takes place, that, that, that exists between the Father and Son and the Spirit, but it takes place between God and his people. And he's saying, I, I want them to come into that same covenantal oneness that I am beginning right now, this one covenantal church that is going to exist. They will be like us in that. It's also a oneness of ownership, not of essence. All who are Christ's, will have been purchased by Christ and brought to the Father. Everybody inside this covenant is inside this covenant 
the same way, by grace through faith. By grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. All are one in and through Christ Jesus only. So these will believe through the word, this word that is going to be brought forth. So it is a unity also created by a loyalty to an apostolic testimony. We believe the same things. We believe the same apostolic testimony with regard to who Jesus Christ is. That's where our oneness is, um, is, is, finds its center. They all will confess Jesus as Lord. Um, it says in Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And in that verse, really you see two key elements of belief that are necessary to be in the covenant. One is that you confess the Lord Jesus, that is that Jesus is God. You confess his deity and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Um, and, and that's shorthand for he died for your sins on the cross and was raised again for your justification. So th these are the two key things that must be believed in order to be in the covenant. That is that Jesus, uh, Jesus is God and that God raised him from the dead um, um, unto, uh, unto our ju justification. So there's no difference at all in the entry. Back in Galatians again, speaking to Gentiles, Galatians 3, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That's it, faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, listen, then you are Abraham's seed. You're, 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 the, you're what was blessed by the one that would come through Abraham. You're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This unity of testimony then will be an evangelistic tool for the ages, um, for the ages to come in the church. So it says there in verse 21 that the world may believe that you sent me. There is something about our covenantal unity our declaration of the creed, our, definition, our declaration of who Jesus is over generations, over centuries, throughout all tongues and tribes, that is an evangelistic tool, it is an evangelistic instrument that God uses to, to declare the message of the gospel to all the world. This keeps the, the gospel message the same and central doesn't matter what your ethnic background is, doesn't matter what other traditions that you might have had, other opinions that others may have had with regard to reality. The message of the gospel remains the same wherever it goes with regard to Jesus Christ being Lord, dying for your sins, raised from the dead. Faith in him is the only entry, the only possible way into uh, eternal life. And so that's what, what Jesus is praying, that there's to be this unity of apostolic testimony. There would be this unity of being all in the same covenant. It would be the same covenant over all of this age. And then in verse 22, he says, And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one as we are one. So Jesus spoke of the unity of the Father and Son in the mutual sharing of glory in the work of the cross and the gift of eternal life. You might remember that back in uh, chapter 13. Verse 31, 32, so when he had gone out, Jesus said, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. And then the beginning of this prayer in chapter 17, father, the hour has come, glorify your son that your son also may glorify you. So there's this redounding glory, bestowing of glory back and forth between the father and son in this mutual sharing of the glory of the work of the cross and the 
the salvation of the world. This unity brought forth through the word and mediated by the spirit is something the church has and is to be preserved. It is the gift of God. So this unity, this, this bestowing of glory, of glory and this unity that is promised that, we, that um, when he says, uh, and the glory which you gave me, I've given them that they may be one, that, that this may exist, is a unity that God answered. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 4, go to Ephesians a couple times, it'd be worth seeing this. Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to read the first six verses. Paul writes, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So there is this unity of the Spirit that we already have, and we are to endeavor to keep it with all long-suffering. And then he says, he says, there is one body and one spirit, just, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. This unity, Father and Son, Spirit, is in you all. It's also in us. What we're charged to do is not to have that unity of the Spirit, but rather to keep that unity of the Spirit, to remain in fellowship with one another, to bear with one another with lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering. And the way that we have long-suffering, the way that we're able to bear with one another in the midst of the community of the church is by always remembering that we have no high standing within this church. We come in only, only through the cross, we only, all of us only come in because we're sinners. What qualifies you to be a member of the church? Well, you have to be a sinner. Yeah. It's not, you know, it's not about you have to be a good person. You have to be a bad person. You, you have to be somebody who, outside of Christ, is under the wrath of God. You, you have to be somebody who, um, outside of what Christ would do, you would be cast into the outer darkness for eternity. Are you qualified? Well, if you keep that in your mind, and then you realize it's all by grace through faith, and we cultivate that. We cultivate a thanksgiving and an awe that God would take us, and how thick and marvelous grace and love, uh, 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 the love of God is, that keeps us lowly. That keeps us gentle towards one another. That keeps, up, keeps us from becoming arrogant or, 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 or thinking that we have somehow arrived uh, at a place that others are not. So we're, we are to endeavor to keep this unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The word is full of illustrations to this end, that we are just one body. We are one, in one vine with many branches. We are one temple with many stones. We are one body with many members. And so, as the Apostle Creed states, we say that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Or in the Nicene Creed, we, we say we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. And I know for many people that word Catholic bothers us. It bothers us Protestants. What are we confessing here? Um, but, but this term Catholic is not Rome's. It's, it, the word comes from two Greek words combined. Um, kata and halas, or katalas, katalas. So katalas is where we get, it's just a trans, transcription of that word where we get the word Catholic. Catalus, you find in, for instance, Acts chapter 9. I have this in my notes for you. Acts chapter 9, where it says, And then the church throughout all Judea, Samaria, and Galilee had peace and were edified. Throughout all is Catholic. 
throughout all is Catalus, okay? Um, so it was the churches throughout all or the church universal including is what it means. So the Catholic Church, when we confess the Holy Catholic Church or the one Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, we are confessing the universal church. We are con confessing a single church that exists in many places and over many years and centuries in many languages and in many ethnicities. We're, we're, we're confessing one holy Catholic and apostolic, apostolic that it came from the teachings of the apostles and that is our unity. You see this apostolic testimony is, is the ground of the unity that we enjoy in our covenant with God. The Catholic Church is the universal church. It is the one church based on the one confession of faith in Jesus Christ. This kind of unity means that the churches are one church, not because we all agree, <laughs> because we certainly don't on many things, right? So we're, we're not, it's, this is not a unity because we have all arrived and we have a complete understanding of our faith and a complete understanding of what it means to be um, people who are in Christ and how to live in this world and how to bring forth a Christendom throughout all the world. So we haven't figured that out. There's, there's, there's many things that we disagree on. So our unity, the unity we have in the spirit that is ours, is not a unity that because we all agree, but because we all have the same Lord. We are owned by the same Lord. You see, um, in, in fact, to demand that we have unity by taking away those things that we may um, hold dear in terms of what we understand the scriptures to teach, but someone else, some other denomination, some other group doesn't. And we say, well, we'll, we'll remove all of those things, and then, and then that's what's going to create unity. Well, that, that's an error, and the reason it's an error is because there's both a unity that we have and a unity that Christ is praying for and mediating to us by his Spirit over time that we are going to grow up into. And so, verse 23, back in, in uh, John 17, let's see how this, Jesus continues to pray, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. And he says that, that they may be perfect in one, what is he talking about here? Brought into, because I thought we were already perfect. Don't we have the perfect righteousness of Jesus? So what is the perfection that we still need to have then? Well, brought into this covenantal union with the Son and the Father, we find that this covenant is a covenant of love. It's a covenant of love. And this is a love that sanctifies. It is a covenant that they may be made perfect in one. This kind of love is not a love that says, well, let's just grab hands, sing kumbaya, and pretend like everybody is just fine and gets, a, it gets along. God's love in and through us is a love that is... It's, it's more like, well, it's the word of God. It's, it's the, the love of God is the word of God, and the word of God is sharp like a two-edged sword. God's love is sharp like a two-edged sword. God's love is, is, is a protecting, caring, sanctifying work that changes us, transforms us, makes us more and more into his image. That's what, that's what this kind of love is. And the word perfect is the Greek word telos, refers to the mature or the fully grown up man or to the end towards which we are going. So you can think of it being made perfect as a, a couple of things. You can think of it as a man, a little boy growing up to be a man. 
when he's a little boy, he's completely human. He's, he's 100% totally human, but he ain't there yet, right? And so he needs to be loved. He needs to be disciplined. He needs to be brought up into, and grow to full maturity to become who he is to become. And so that's the difference that these two unities are like the unity of the, uh, or the person of this little boy and this grown man. The other way to look at it is that God has, God is telling a story. And the story God is, is telling has a beginning and a middle and an end. We are somewhere in the middle of that story. But we are on our way, the church is on its way to its telos, to its end, to its purpose. And we are to see from the scriptures what that purpose is. So, and this means that we have more unity to grow up into, which means that it is a design feature and not a flaw that we are not in perfect unity as the church yet. When we first formed the CRE, I remember that many people came to us and said, another denomination, are you kidding me? We're not, how many denominations are there? And we were able to say, we're, well, we are at least two less denominations than we used to be. Because we had three independent churches who were completely not associated with anybody else. So, so de denominations aren't a sin by nature, you know, just by name. Um, denominations are the attempt to gather together and, and be more and more working towards that unity. But we have many different strands of the Christian faith that are still out there as God is growing us up. And it's a design feature, not a flaw. It's what God is doing as he's working out the salvation, not just in us individually, but in the church over time as well. So, because we're not grown up into that unity, and because we still not see, um, uh, this, see the nations discipled completely, those two things are good evidence, good bi biblical indicators that we are still in the early stages of Christendom. Because the gospel is to, to go and we are to see nations discipled and the gospel is to go forth and we are to see the church grow up into, into its full maturity. And from what I can see, we're still far away from both of those things occurring yet, which is good biblical indicators that we're still in the early stages of the work of kingdom building over all of the earth. Paul would also write about this unity that we are to grow up into, a fullness from the teachings of the apostles, that is, from the word of God. Back in Ephesians 4, again, if you left there, you might want to pop back. Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. And here's the reason why for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, for the building up of the body of Christ, for the maturing of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It goes on, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, which is something that we stumble in regularly. Churches stumble in regularly, but because we have not grown up yet into the fullness of Christ. Verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, we would grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by whatever he joint supplies, according to the effective working, by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So, 
Love sanctifies. Love grows us up. Love, the love of Christ moves us towards maturity and fullness and completeness. Love and truth, to be evangelical love and truth, to be the real thing, must go together. Um, I've heard this illustration for years. Think of the truth as being the skeleton and love being the flesh. Truth is the skeleton. It's, it's, the, uh, it's the foundation. It's the, it's the structure of the thing. These things must be. And the flesh is the life. It's the, it's the use of that, of that structure in order to move, to accomplish, to, to, uh, to embrace. So think of truth as being the skeleton and love being the flesh. And if you only have the skeleton, if you only have the raw, cold truth, then you have, no, you have structure, but you have no life. And if you only have love, as I wrote it in there, if you only have love, you are warm and soft like a limp rag or a bowl full of oatmeal, and you will not be able to stand against the demands to conform to the unbelieving world. And, and part of the reason that the church is having such a hard time not conforming, or I'm sorry, having a hard time staying back from conforming to the world around us is because that's the kind of love that we've been preaching it's been a love that didn't matter about the truth. It's, truth doesn't matter. Doctrine doesn't matter. Doctrine divides. We just want Christ and his love. That's not the love of Christ. The love of Christ is a full man, skeleton and flesh, all together, joined together to bring life, life with structure, life with meaning and purpose, life with real truth. And so now the, 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 uh, the, the prayer ends, and we're going we're gonna to see what this story is really all about. But it's in, like we've seen through John, it's sometimes you've got to read Jesus' words and really sit and think about what else have you heard in order to see what's going on here. Because the first reading of verses 24 through 26, you might say, I, I'm, I'm not sure what he's talking about. Listen, 24 through 26. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I've declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. So this is the unity and the glorious end of the matter, the telos, the purpose. The Son wants the church to be with him where he is, verse 24, in order that they might see his glory, the product of the Father's love. So he wants, he wants the church to be brought to him. Now, uh, this, I believe, is, is referring to being brought to him in heaven or being brought to him in the final resurrection, there is this need for this unity to be finally consummated as we are all brought, I believe, in the end, in our, in, our, in our resurrection bodies to the Lord Jesus. The prayer then ends with the request that this love of the Father for the Son would indwell the church and the Son would as well. Verse 26, that, that the love that we have for one another would indwell us. Remember, we have seen that the love that the Father has for the Son and that the Son has for the Father is the person of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit in us is the love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father, overflowing into his body, into his uh, church. And so that the, the love would indwell, the, the love that the Son has in them would also indwell them is the love of the head for the body. Among other things, this is more veiled wedding language. This is wedding language. 
This is why I, want, I, I wanted you to sing Psalm 45 before we, we got to this passage. And, and it's worthwhile maybe going back afterwards and reading through that language again. Why, why is there this great wedding psalm, probably, probably written on, um, for, for the wedding ceremony of Solomon to, the, uh, to Pharaoh's daughter, most likely, um, but, but certainly an image of something else. In fact, the writer of Hebrews will use Psalm 45 and point that, that the psalm is speaking of Christ and his bride. Christ and his bride. So what you sang about this morning <coughs> in Psalm 45 was, was an, a, um, a picture of the answer to the prayer that Jesus is giving in, verse, <coughs> in these verses in chapter 17. Okay, <clears throat> so let's see this for a second. Let me show this to you. At the first, remember the first miracle in the, in the Gospel of John? Jesus, in there, when, when Jesus turns water into wine... That was not just a, whoop, here's a, here's a miracle. Let me show you a miracle. I'm going to, uh, see, I'll pull a rabbit out. No, I won't pull a rabbit out. I'm gonna, I'll, I know, I'll, I'll, I'll turn water and wine. No, there's purpose in this. The bridegroom at that wedding was not fit to be able to take care of the wedding party. He ran out of wine. He ran out of joy. He ran out of celebration. Jesus stepped in as another bridegroom, the better bridegroom, with better wine, better joy, better, sal salva better salvation. Jesus is the greater bridegroom, while the former was out of wine. <coughs> okay? In chapter 3, John the Baptist told us that he considered himself, not, I'm not the bridegroom, he says, I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. I'm the friend of the bridegroom, escorting the bride to his friend, because that's what the, the, that's what the Soshan, or the, or the friend of the bride, in those days did. He was the one who brought, escorted the, um, the, the bride to the bridegroom, okay? And then, um, when speaking to the woman at the well, in John chapter 4, Jesus was a type of the perfect husband who would provide living water overflowing. Anyone who knew their Old Testament knew that when, when there was a story of a man and a foreign woman at a well, there's going to be a wedding. That's the setup. That's the setup throughout the scriptures. So, so what's going on here is, and, and she's a Samaritan woman. She's an outcast. And Jesus is saying, I'm taking the outcast. And we're still going to see in chapter 20, at the resurrection of Jesus, we're going to see Jesus, the new Adam, in a garden with a woman. You're supposed to notice these things. And it all comes together to see that this is the story of a wedding. It's not just the story of a wedding. This is the archetype of all stories. Jesus is going to kill the dragon and get the girl. That's what's going on. That's the story of the gospel. He's killing the dragon and getting the girl. And the girl is the church. The, the girl is his bride, the, the covenanted church altogether. The first Adam was given Eve, and she is the mother of all the living, we are told. The last Adam receives a wife, a bride made perfect, and the church, we are told, is the mother of us all, Galatians 4. Paul tells us that he's jealous to present this bride to Christ in 2 Corinthians 11 like the friend of the bridegroom. He is preparing the bride to bring to the bridegroom. Jesus prays that, that we may behold my glory his glory, which you have given me, John 17, 24, right here. So he prays that they would behold, that you would behold my glory. Well, what's the glory of a husband? His wife. Second Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians eleven seven. 7. The glory of a husband is his wife, his bride. 
In John's apocalyptic vision, he is shown the Lamb's wife, and she reveals the glory of God. Revelation 21. Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like the most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And then in the beginning of Revelation says similarly, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So there, therefore, we know that the New Jerusalem is the bride, is the church that is brought to the bridegroom, to Jesus. The dragon is defeated, and he gets the girl. That's the story of the gospel. Now, if that's all true, then, then the, the first thing we, we need to really do is we really need to join with Jesus Christ in his confidence that he is going to get that bride, and she is going to be that beautiful and radiant and glorious. Because as we look around the, the church today, she is anything but glorious and, and a, a glorious raiment. We're a mess. But the, but the devil's been put down, and Jesus is on the throne, and he is promised by his spirit, by his spirit, through the church, the friends of the bride in essence, the bride is going to be perfected. The bride is going to grow to her fullness, and the bride is going to be presented to the bridegroom. And this is why Jesus teaches how important marriage is, how important marriage is as a declaration of the gospel. All of the marriages here preach the gospel every day, 24-7. You can't stop it. That's what we're told in, in Ephesians chapter 5. The question is only whether or not you're preaching a true gospel or a false gospel in, in the roles that you are playing as husbands and wives. Because when Paul teaches on marriage, on the roles of husband and wife, he knows this is all about Christ and the church. And it is in marriage and in the family that this objective unity is already, it's already ours. I now pronounce you husband and wife. Right? Boom. You're done. It's done. 100% completely now husband and wife. And a lot of work to do. Amen? So that's what's going on. You have this objective unity and then the ongoing sanctifying work of becoming more and more one in the knowledge of God and the knowledge of one another as you grow together as husband and wife. And you're one family with the father also as a responsible head. And, and I'm... I'm really not changing subjects here. Understanding the glory of Christ and, and proclaiming the glory of Christ has got to start within our families. We have to be molecular, molecular units that become these, this unit of light, this, this shining light to the world around us of what it means to live in the grace of God, of what it means to be made new, of what it means to love and submit what it means to give ourselves away, to mutually indwell, to, to bring forth the fruit of children in the next generations, to fill the world. Th this, is what, this is what we are doing in this. In, in, in some sense, what we are doing is answering Christ's prayer as he's bringing forth his glory in, um, in our families, in and through our families. So, 
We must endeavor then to keep the unity that has been given, and then we must endeavor as well to grow in our faith as husband and wife, as, um, as children relating to our parents and parents to the children. You're not to endeavor to keep your pride. You're not, you're not to endeavor to keep your point. You're not to endeavor to keep your dignity. You're to endeavor to keep your unity. Husbands and wives preach the gospel all day long. And it is here that we grow up in the unity of the faith together as well in the constant sanctifying work of loving our wives and obeying our husbands. The discipline of our children is not an act of punishment. It is love. It is love. The the discipline of our children is an act of love. It is loving instruction to build up the glorious unity of the family covenant and the promises of God. I love you as I discipline you because you are in covenant with us. I love you and am disciplining you because you are in covenant with us and want you to grow up into the fullness of the glory of that covenant. And all of that represents the work of the church, loving and disciplining and growing up the body of Christ over now over centuries to, be, to, be, to become a full fam- the full family of God and the bride of Christ. So, children, obey your parents in the Lord. You are participating in the growing up into the full man as the church grows up into the unity of faith and practice. And all of that mirrors what the son is doing with his betrothed bride and what the world is to see. And from that, believe the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we, this church and your family, 2023 today, we are the answer to this prayer of Jesus or the ongoing answer to this prayer. And by faith, we are to see many, many more answers to come. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Father, hear our prayer, for we are echoing Jesus' prayer. Let us share in your glory as we grow up into the perfect bride of Christ, as we are used by you to spread your gospel news, as we bring up faithful generations to love and serve you, anticipating the nations flowing to the mountain of the Lord in faith and in hope. Grant us such confidence right there from the words of Jesus himself, for we ask it in his name, and amen. Stand.